0: I'm not exactly sure how well my experiment is going. Uh, Remember that instead of trying to cover a specific number of verses each week as we normally do, I determined just to try to work our way through 1st and 2nd Thessalonians, just being sure that within 12 weeks we were able to study eight chapters. This is Lesson 4 and we're still in Chapter 2. <laughs> so I have eight less, eight weeks to get in six chapters and I haven't been accomplishing that speed so far. We, so I may need to pick up the pace a little bit uh, and I may not, I don't know. We'll find out. Keep, keep in mind as we think about First Thessalonians that Paul was not afraid to ask the Thessalonians to recall his behavior among them. In in fact, he wanted them to remember. And it had not been such a long time that they could not remember. They certainly could remember. He, He was confident, I'm sure, that they would be helped by thinking about the way he preached among them and more than that, even, no, I shouldn't say more than that, as much they would be benefited by remembering how he conducted himself among them. So how he spoke, the manner of his proclamation, but also the manner of his life. And, and hopefully those memories of how Paul and his companions, it's not just Paul, because he uses we more than once. How we behaved ourselves, what he was, Timothy was, and what Timothy was, Silas or Sylvanus was. They they all were the same, I'm certain. But but Paul would believe that those memories would would solidify their regard for him. And and that was not just the thing that concerned Paul most, their regard for him. But if they regarded him, they would regard his message. If they did not regard him, if they did not think Paul was an appropriate person, why would they want to accept his message? At the same time, I think it would negate any uh, criticisms of those who may have opposed Paul and may have said, well, I can tell you why Paul never came back. He didn't care about us. And, and whether that was actually a comment or not, if Paul got them on his side, that would help to take away that criticism. Now, in what we've studied so far in chapter 2, Paul has already claimed that he preached boldly, that he preached genuinely, that he preached only to please God, not to please men, that he preached without flattery, that he did not preach for covetousness sake or monetary gain only. He did not seek glory from men. But he adds one other thing and that's where we begin tonight in verse 7. I'm using the New King James Version, verse 7. But we were gentle among you just as a nursing mother cherishes her own children. Paul says, "We were gentle among you." It's kind of an interesting thing here and I I don't know, I didn't check everybody's translation. I don't normally do that. Sometimes I do, but, but in, in the Greek language, there are two words that are very close to each other with the exception of one letter, the first letter, and one of those words is gentle, and the other word without the letter is babies, and you can see maybe a connection of how they would fit together. And there were some who took what Paul said, and instead of the way our translations normally give it, gentle among you, they wanted to say, we are ba- we were babies among you. In other words, we were like little children, little babies among you. It doesn't really make a lot of sense. And, and, and I think, in a way, it, it diminishes uh, what Paul is really trying to say. Here is a nursing mother, a mother who, and, and it's hard to know exactly how the term is used specifically, a mother who is nursing or a mother who nurses with her own children. In other words, she cares for other children as a nurse. How, how can a woman do that unless she cares and is gentle, a true nurse cares and is gentle for those children? But what is she like with her own children? Why well, she certainly should be more gentle. She should have more regard. He, he's not saying she doesn't have regard for other children, but he's saying with her own children. We treated you like a nurse would treat her own children. And that means Paul wasn't just doing a job. He wasn't just there to be there. Look at 2 Timothy, the second chapter, because we recall Paul's counsel to the young evangelist Timothy, who had been here in Thessalonica with him. Chapter 2 of 2 Timothy, and verses 24 and 25, he says to Timothy, And a servant of the Lord must not quarrel, but be gentle to all, able to teach, patient, In humility, correcting those who are in opposition, if God perhaps will grant them repentance so that they may know the truth. Timothy should have had, according to Paul, a gentle attitude. doesn't mean he wasn't. It just means Paul is instructing him, this is how you should be. Remember Galatians chapter 6. Look at Galatians 6. And verse 1. Brethren, and incidentally we pass now from preachers to anybody that's a Christian. Brethren, if a man is overtaken in any trespass, you are spiritual, restore such a one. How? In a spirit of gentleness, considering yourself, lest you also be tempted. Now let me mention this, please. Oftentimes, it is unfortunate that people take one statement or one characteristic and push that to an extreme. Let me give you an example. God is love. The Bible says several times, God is love. But is that all there is to God? Could you say God is love and nothing else? Well, do we not read of the wrath of God? Do we not read that God punished and punished and will punish people? Do we not read of God hating certain things? Proverbs 6, 16 through 19 said, There are six things God hates, seven that are an abomination to Him. And then He names those. So, yes, God is love. Absolutely, God is love. But God is not just love. And the reason I'm saying that is that Paul wasn't always gentle. I don't think you would think he was gentle when he rebuked Peter to the face, would you? you think that's gentle? Or when he warned the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians, when I come again, I'm going to deal with those people. If they don't repent, I'm going to deal with them. That's not gentle. And so the question is, why was he gentle with the Thessalonians? And I think the answer to that is because he could be and because he needed to be. Why was he gentle with them? They were new Christians. They themselves were babes in Christ and Paul would treat them gently like they were babies. I think that's a lesson to us about those who are young in the faith. Sometimes we are forgetful and think that somebody becomes a Christian, he ought to know everything that we know. Or he ought to be up to speed in all of his life just because he's been baptized. Baptize somebody Sunday night, you think Monday they're fully up to speed? No. No and so we're gentle or try to be as long as we can and and it ought to be our goal to be gentle with others whenever possible and as much as is possible some that does not mean that we don't stand up for truth it does not mean that the same timothy who was told to be gentle was not also told that the responsibility of an evangelist was not only to reprove and rebuke with all long suffering and doctrine. In verse 8, Paul says, So affectionately longing for you, we were well pleased to impart to you not only the gospel of God. But also our own lives, because you had become dear to us. We didn't just preach to you; you really meant something to us. And he's not saying, and that's all past. But we, we, you became precious in our eyes, and and, and it moved him. The affection he had for them not only moved him to proclaim the truth to them, but to share his life with them. And his desire was not just to preach to people, but to preach for people in order to be able to help them. That should be every preacher's goal. Preacher's goal should never be to preach to people, but to preach for people and to have concern and regard and love for them. Paul was not ashamed or embarrassed to say what other people meant to him. And incidentally, not just these brethren. Look, look back at Philippians 1. You and some have called this Paul's love letter. Because he he has such strong feelings for the Philippians. And he says in Philippians 1 verse 8, for God is my witness. Now that's how serious Paul is about this. God is my witness, how greatly I long for you all with the affection of Jesus Christ. I long for you. Paul didn't just say, I'm glad to know you and, you know, we're friends. He said, I long for you. Now, when you get to verse 9, Paul expands not only on the way he treated them, but now he moves to how he was with them. Not just how he treated them, how did I behave? And so he would say in verse 9, For you remember, brethren, our labor and toil for laboring night and day, that we might not be a burden to any of you. We preach to you the gospel of God. Here's Here's also common knowledge, Paul says. I didn't want to be a burden to you. And so we worked, or Paul at least says, I worked to provide my own living. In secular secular work is what he means. I I worked with my own hands so that you wouldn't have to pay me. Now Acts 18 says, Acts 18, you notice, tells us that Paul had a particular skill. Incidentally, it was a common, it was a common thing for Jewish fathers to teach their sons some skill. And what I mean by that is a Jewish father wouldn't just say, I want you to be a teacher, or I want you to be a philosopher. You have to know something so that you can eat if you need to work. And so in verse 3, when he had met Aquila and Priscilla, it says in Acts 18.3, So because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked, for by occupation they were tent makers. Paul had learned to make tents. And I'm convinced his father had taught him to make tents so that if he needed to work, he could make tents and make a living. Now, is that what all preachers should do? I don't know how to make a tent. I can't even put up a tent most of the time. Um, There are people who have thought and do think that preachers should not accept pay there's some churches who think they shouldn't accept very much pay, but 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 there are people who think that preachers should not preach for pay. And incidentally, one of the things that bothers me a lot is that this is a very prevalent feeling among American workers toward Indian preachers. Some of the largest works in India. And, and I please remember this. I'm telling you my philosophy about this. You don't have to accept it. You don't have to believe it's right. There are some very large works that say preachers don't should not expect to be paid. They need to get a secular job. And and preach preach for free. Oh said more than once that he thought that preachers and elders should be paid. Exactly right. And I'm going to get to that in just a moment. I will. Thank you. No, that's all right. Thank you. Um, From a very practical standpoint, I, I thought of two things. First of all, I don't know a single one of those Americans who says that Indian preachers should not be paid by churches who isn't paid by a church. Not a one of them. So if that is true, that they shouldn't be paid, then neither should the Americans who tell them they shouldn't be paid. But the other part of it is even more practical to me, and that's this. There aren't very many 40-hour jobs in India among the less educated Indians, at least, and not even among educated ones sometimes. If you were an uneducated Indian preacher, I'm I'm talking about you didn't have a formal college education. You couldn't go work in an IT factory or anything. You, You had to do secular work like maybe being a coolie. A coolie would be just a common laborer, and you'd make maybe a dollar a day. But you might work 12, 14 hours a day. Now, how many of those men doing hard physical labor do you think have enough time after 14 hours to go home and prepare sermons and visit all the members and do everything that a full-time preacher is expected to do? None of them. And so I saw very early on that some of the men who said they shouldn't get any pay didn't realize that they were getting pay and had jobs both. (laughs) Um, That's another thing. Anyway, just as, as was mentioned, and this is absolutely correct, Paul argued for the right of preachers to be supported by others. Uh, Look at 1 Corinthians 9. 1 Corinthians 9. And this is an indisputable argument because it's written by inspiration. This is not a human being's idea. This is an inspired apostle's statement. Look beginning in chapter 9 at verse 6 and I'm not going to go back and talk about the other things Paul has said but or is it only Barnabas and Ra- and I who have no right to refrain from working you know what that says doesn't it others had the right to refrain from working other preachers had the right to refrain from working are Paul and Barnabas the only two that shouldn't do that then he says these are logical arguments Whoever goes to war at his own expense. Who plants a vineyard and does not eat of its fruit? Who tends a flock and does not drink of the milk of the flock? Do I say these things as a mere man or does not the law, the law of Moses, say the same also? For it is written in the law of Moses, you shall not muzzle an ox while it treads out the grain. And then his question, is it? Oxen God is concerned about? You think that's why that's there? Or does he say it all together for our sakes? For our sakes, no doubt, this is written that he who plows should plow in hope, and he who threshes in hope should be a partaker of his hope. If we have sown spiritual things for you, is it a great thing that we reap your material things? If others are partakers of this right over you, are we not even more? Nevertheless, we have not used this right, but endure all things, with, lest we hinder the gospel of Christ. Do you not know that those who minister the holy things eat the things of the temple, and those who serve at the altar partake of the offerings at the, of the altar? Even so, the Lord has commanded that those who preach the gospel listen. The Lord has commanded that those who preach the gospel should live from the gospel. Now Paul would go on and say, I have used this. Why? Because I chose not to. In some ways, Paul had a little streak of stubbornness in him. We're glad he did. And he said, I'm not going to give anybody the opportunity to criticize me about preaching for money, so I just won't take your money. Corinthians, I won't take the Corinthians' money. But listen, Paul tells the Philippians what? You sent to my needs once and again. Did Paul accept that? Yeah, absolutely. Why? Because the Philippians didn't have anything against Paul taking their money, and Paul knew it. For somebody who wanted to be ugly about it, Paul would say, Okay, I won't, I won't preach, I won't take any money from you. But from those who loved him, he'd say, I'll accept what you give me. In fact, he writes and says to a church, I'm going to come by and see you so you can help me forward on my trip. You can help pay for my trip. <laughs> because I'm preaching the gospel. And if you live for the gospel, you have a right to partake of the gospel. Okay, then in verse 10 You are witnesses, and God also, how devoutly and justly and blamelessly we behaved ourselves. Among you who believe you saw it, but notice he says here and God also you're not the only ones who saw this God saw it. We know God witnesses what we did. We lived devoutly some translations use the word holy or pure some justly upright or righteous blamelessly. They were careful to be above reproach. They didn't give anybody a justifiable reason to criticize. And so he could say before Felix in Acts 24, verse 16, I always strive to have a conscience without offense toward God and man. I do everything I can to keep my conscience right. Now verse 11, As you know how we exhorted and comforted and charged every one of you as a father does his own children. Here the illustration changes from a nursing mother to a father. And he talked about that, that behavior of Paul's led them to exhort and to comfort and to charge every one of you. We didn't play favors. We told everybody the same thing. And not just encouraging them, but commanding them as needed. Again, not just based upon his authority as apostle, but as a, an authority of Christ. An apostle of Jesus, he could command them. But he said, I did this just like a father does his children. Incidentally, it is not Paul's stated intention of teaching, but it's very clearly stated that that's what a father ought to be doing. That is exhorting and comforting and even commanding his children. That's what a father does. That you would walk worthy of God who calls us into his own kingdom and glory. Why would Paul do that? Because he wanted them to walk in a life that was worthy of God. I'm going to try to say this carefully and you listen more carefully, okay? We sometimes become so consumed, I fear, about how unworthy we are. And, and you know I humility's wonderful. that we forget that God wants us to be worthy. I, I'm convinced that God does not want us to think of ourselves only as being worthless. That's what this isn't that what this passage says? That you would walk worthy of God. I We want you to be worthy of God. Not unworthy. Now, I think the reason people get hung up on that is because they don't want to be arrogant. They don't want to act like they deserve what they get. But God's intention is that we be worthy of Him. Now, incidentally, in, in verse uh, 12, we also see that you'd walk worthy of God who called you into his own kingdom and glory. Paul did not want them to think that they had become what they were only because of what he had done. Notice that you walk worthy of God. He's not saying I did all of this so I could get all the credit for how I've made you. The teaching has caused you to walk worthy of God. Paul could be thankful. That would be his grounds for thanksgiving. Verse 13, for this reason we also thank God without ceasing, because when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you welcomed it not as the word of men, but as it is in truth, the word of God, which also effectively works in you who believe. The reception they had given the gospel was not only hearing it, but more importantly, receiving it, really receiving. We talked about that Sunday. They, they didn't just hear it. They took it in. They absolutely believed it was God's word. They took it into their hearts and they acted upon it. And they understood what Paul preached and taught was not Paul's, but God's word. And, and, and that's extremely important that people understand that if God's word is proclaimed, it's not the preacher's word, it's God's word. Paul was simply the messenger of God. You know, when, when Paul was going through that experience of having seen the light and Ananias is supposed to come to him, if you look back in Acts, the ninth chapter, look back, look back in Acts 9 for just a moment and listen to what uh, the Lord will tell Ananias. Because remember, Ananias really is not really excited about going. Verse 15, go, (laughs) I don't care what you think, Ananias, go, for he is a chosen vessel of mine to bear my name before Gentiles, kings, and the children of Israel. He's my messenger, and I'm going to send him to some really difficult situations, Gentiles and kings. And, and because of the way they had received this gospel, it was effectively working in them. I'm going to come back to that hopefully. Notice, and incidentally, the tense is not past tense, effectively works in you, continues to work in you. One of the strengths that the Word of God produces in the Christian is seen in the next verse. Verse fourteen: For you, brethren, became imitators of the churches of God which are in Judea in Christ Jesus. For you also suffered the things same things with your own countrymen, uh, from your own countrymen, just as they did from the Judeans. Uh, it had produced in them a patience in suffering for the faith, and they had become like their Judean counterparts. I don't think they would have ever. Intentionally thought, well, we want to be imitators of the Judeans in suffering. But they were. You remember back in chapter 1, verse 6, he said, And you became followers of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much affliction. Wasn't easy. Your own countrymen, he said. Likely means Gentiles here. Now, according to Acts 17, the trouble started with Jews. Remember in Thessalonica? Troubles with Jews. And and they may still, even at this moment, have been the heart of the problem, but you know, when evil people start creating trouble, it's easy for others to join in. and Gentiles wouldn't need much excuse to join in the criticism of Christians. Since Paul mentions the Judean tormentors, he sets forth their sins, verse 15. What about these Judeans who killed both the Lord Jesus and their own prophets and have persecuted us and they do not please God and are contrary to all men? Weren't these Paul's people? He was a Jew. Weren't these his people? Yes. Did he not care for them? Certainly did. You want to see how much he cared for them? Look at Romans 9. Romans 9, uh, verse 1 through 3. I tell you the truth in Christ, I'm not lying. My conscience also bearing me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have what great sorrow and continual grief in my heart for I could wish that I myself were cursed in Christ for from Christ for my brethren, my countrymen who are according to life. if Paul said, if... If, if it were possible for me to give myself in order to save my people, I would do it. I, I don't know many people who could have that kind of spirit. I, I, would you say if, if, if I could save all the people of the U.S., I'd give my own life? Not many people would say it. Paul said, I would. I'd give myself if they could just be saved. But you know what? Paul also had to be honest. Did he love his people? Absolutely. But here is what honesty demanded that he say. They killed the Lord. You remember a couple, a few years ago what a silly thing began to be a part of the news. The, the news is always silly, but it, it was really silly back then. When, when there were complaints among the Jews because somebody was accusing them of killing Christ. They just couldn't believe that somebody would say they were responsible. Paul says they killed the Lord. They used the Romans to do their dirty deed, but they used them. They killed him as much as they could have killed him. But they also killed all of the prophets that God sent. And, And Peter condemns them in Acts 2 and shows that they used the Romans to do their deed. They drove out, Paul said, they drove us out, these Jews. And that could mean only one thing in Paul's mind, and that was that God was not pleased with them. How could he be pleased with them? And that would make them, according to Paul, hostile to all men. That is, anyone who would hear or obey the gospel. And this was seen in verse 16, forbidding us to speak to the Gentiles that they may be saved so as always to fill up the measure of their sins, but wrath has come upon them to the uttermost. Forbidding them, the apostles, the opportunity to speak. That happened, it's seen in Acts 13, one occasion. And you know, in some ways, even the Jewish Christians, at a certain point, were so slow to understand. Because in Acts 15, there were some who were demanding that Gentile males had to be circumcised and to keep the law of Moses in order to be saved. <laughs> Paul wouldn't stand for that. And Paul said they fill up the measure, they fill up their entire measure of sin. And Now th- this statement in verse 16 may confuse some because wrath has come upon them to the uttermost. Wrath has come. God has already poured out His wrath. I, I think you could say, technically in some ways, He had already poured it out. Because they were lost as lost could be. That's wrath. But, but I think in another way, it really means the pronouncement has been made. You know, when a judge condemns a man to die, it doesn't mean that the man has to die immediately, the pronouncement's been made, he's going to die. Not the carrying out of it, necessarily, but the pronouncement, wrath has come because God has said, if you refuse my gospel, you're lost. And it's, you know, that hadn't changed. That hadn't changed. It doesn't have to be a Jew refusing it. Anybody who refuses the gospel is lost. Paul could have had the coming crisis that was going to happen. Now, Paul didn't know when Jerusalem was going to be destroyed, I don't think. He, he knew that it was coming, and the Lord had said that it was coming. But he could have thought about the fact that this whole thing is going to collapse, Judaism is going to collapse. And verse 17, he says, But we, brethren having been taken away from you for a short time in presence, not in heart, endeavored more eagerly to see your face with great desire. Paul affirms his desire to see them. He had been taken from them. Acts 17, verse 10. The brethren sent him away due to the turmoil that was going on in Thessalonica. Albert Barnes says that this word that is used here by Paul implies a Painful bereavement, taken away, means ripped away. You know We've heard the expression, or most of us have heard, out of sight, out of mind, not Paul. Out of sight didn't mean out of mind with Paul. He still had a great desire. I haven't quit thinking about you. I haven't quit praying for you. And so he says in verse 18, Therefore we wanted to come to you, even I, Paul, Time and again, over and over, I wanted to come, but Satan hindered me, or hindered us. Satan hindered us. How? We don't know. Paul believed that Satan was stopping him from coming. And incidentally, Satan couldn't be some kind of a mythical idea of man if he was really stopping Paul from coming. Now what was it? Well, let me, let me mention a possibility or so. Was it by those hateful, unbelieving Jews who followed him from place to place? Is that the way Satan hindered him from making it dangerous to come back to them? Because if he came back to them, he would involve them in trouble too, as he was in trouble. I thought there's one other possibility about that. Maybe others, but how about that thorn in the flesh? And we don't know what that was, but do you remember what Paul calls that thorn in the flesh? A messenger of Satan. Was was, Was Satan afflicting Paul physically in some sense, and that was keeping Paul from coming back? We don't know. Wish we did know. Verses 19 and 20, and then we're going to be out of time. Verses 19 and 20. What is our re- our hope or joy or crown of rejoicing? Is it not even you in the presence of our Lord Jesus at his coming? And certainly, this will be the first time Paul is going to mention a very prominent theme in Thessalonians, and that is the coming of Christ. Not his first coming, his second coming. And Paul will say again and again throughout these letters, The reality is that Christ is coming again. But then that short verse 24, You are our glory and joy. Here's another strong statement of regard. He calls them His hope, His joy, His crown of rejoicing, and His glory. I think Paul saw them as a source of hope. Because Paul knew if they could become... What they had become, from where they had come, others could become the same. Isn't that right? If they had turned to God from idols, doesn't that mean others? That's our hope. You see, you know, every time a person is baptized, that ought to give us hope, doesn't it? If one can be baptized, can another be baptized, and another, and another? They were a joy to him. He delighted in the way the gospel had changed them. They were like a crown placed on his head, his glory. They want me to quit. I don't want to. First and Second Timothy are often used to teach young preachers about their teaching and their conduct. But you know, really, Second 1 Thessalonians 2 seems like it would be just as valuable to train young preachers about the kind of way they ought to be. Thanks for being here tonight. We'll get into chapter 3. Uh, next week, and I hope you'll be able to be here.